host of The Cell. I invite you to listen to our program every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. I would also like to thank you for listening to Community Radio on WGRN LP 94.1 FM, Columbus. I'd like to welcome our listeners back. Last week's show was part one with Dr. Powell Desai with The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. So please sit back and relax for part two with Dr. Powell Desai and learn more about sickle cell. I was kind of wondering, uh, just even with the trials or even with some of the, the, the gene therapy or bone marrow, have you been in the position that you had to tell a patient that they did not qualify or they weren't meeting, they weren't able to meet the standards for them to participate in the trial or if they even wanted to try, you know, gene therapy or bone marrow transplant? Were you, uh, did you ever have to say no to somebody? Yeah. Um, you know, we are just starting um, some of those curative therapies. We're very lucky. We have a person, we have now several people that have had experience doing sickle cell bone marrow transplants and sickle cell gene therapy that, are, um, that have come over the last um, little bit to, to Ohio State that, that bring with us that experience and that ability to hopefully provide that service um, as we go forward. In terms of people being candidates, it's tricky. It's tricky to figure out, again, who's sick enough and who's not too sick that they wouldn't be able to tolerate kind of a lot of the therapies. My patients and I talk about this. They, they talk about, um, what do you think? Do you think I might be able to do gene therapy or not? And we talk about where they are in their illness. Um, and I've, I've made several referrals um, to other centers. I'm hoping that we don't have to do that anymore. I'm hoping that um, here in the short bit, we'll be able to do them personally here. Um, but most of the time, what we talk about are the pros and cons, and then let them at least have that discussion. If they're so sick, for example, for people that are on chronic blood transfusions, one of the big things is that people's iron has to be well managed, right? If they have a ton of iron in their bone marrow, those are not patients that will be able to accept the, the graft. They can't accept gene therapy. They can't accept another person's marrow. Their body will reject it because it's too much iron sitting there and they can't get there. And so some of the conversations I have had is, well, let's start at step one. I want to optimize you to hopefully get you to that point and you can at least go for the referral. But if you go right now, I know that this is too much iron. They're not going to even be able to consider you. So let's optimize your, your current issues to be able to get there. But, but eventually, you know, the ultimate decision usually is made by the person that's going to do that procedure. What I think is um, hard is that balance um, because usually most of my sickle cell patients I've known for years. And so if I could have it my way, 
every single person would get a transplant. Every single person would be cured. And, and, and I would put myself out of work tomorrow if I could. No questions asked. Um, uh, but the reality is even, even after people are cured, they need care. They need care because some of the organ damage that's already happened from sickle cell doesn't 100% go away. They need monitoring after transplant. They need, so again, you need to make sure that you know, A, what you're getting into, and B, that you've optimized your care until that time that we can hopefully get you to that next step whether that's in a year, whether that's in five years, whether that's in 10 years, whenever this becomes where we can hopefully cure more and more and more patients, we need to be able to get people to that point. Um, and so kind of helping people and setting them up for success now is more what we talk about rather than you're not a candidate or you are a candidate. It's more let's optimize you so that you can hopefully get there. Go ahead. Police, can I jump in for one second? See, Dr. Desai, you know, she can do the medical side of that. But when patients, Annie, when people call me. Annie, Annie, your yes. second is up. Your second is up. Wow. That was quick. That was quick. I'm going to take a couple more seconds. Wow. Okay. I'm going to take a couple more seconds. But as I was saying, as I was saying, before I started really interrupting, what happens is, you know, something new comes to market. And everybody wants to try it and everybody's gun ho. And so, I mean, I know it happens a lot in the pediatric world. Parents are like, you know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And then they have to dial them back a little and say, you know, because that's the parent and the parents making decisions, they dial them back a little. And Dr. Desai deals with adults for consenting. But what I look at, you know, I'm trying to look at the mental health side of this. And, you know, and I try to talk them down and say, okay, I understand you want to try this, but where are you? What is your doctor saying? What are, what are, you know, if you're married, what is your spouse saying? You have children. Everybody needs to be in this decision because you have to look at the end result. You know, we had a patient who, despite the fact, you know, that we told him and he was, you know, a teen, he was a, you know, young adult that he should not get a bone marrow transplant because he had too much, too much damage. You know, he did it anyway. Then he reverted back. He was, he was three years old after this thing happened. He had to learn how to walk again. He had to learn how to do everything again. He almost died. I mean, now, yeah, he, you know, his quality of life is not where it should be. And I hate to say he was better off with his sickle cell disease. It was something he knew. Now he has so many complications. Um, now he can't keep a job. He's had so many seizures. But because those options are on the table, sometimes, you know, and, and, and you have to understand, you know, and I know doctors, well, you understand. I mean, everybody on this call should understand. You know, you have a person, they have this diagnosis, and what they're looking at is, you know, this diagnosis of death, or this diagnosis of debilitation, and something comes on the market. Why can't I have it? Why can't I get it? Why are you not allowing me to get it? And sometimes, again, as Dr. Desai said, we're talking about all these things in the pipeline. This, this, this one right here may not be for, for you. Maybe the next one. Maybe if you start taking this and maybe if you start using some of the, the new things that are out there with added on to this, maybe the next thing that comes on. But this particular thing 
is not for you. And so, you know, and then you're disheartened if they go and do it. And now then you get the end result and, you know, you never want to be in a position. You know, I know Dr. Desai never wants to be in that position. We never want to be in a position, you know, to say we told you so. But, you know, it's disheartening when you sit there and you talk to people for hours and hours and, you know, in your heart of hearts, in your mind of mind, you know that this is not going to turn out well and they do it anyway. And then it doesn't. Then you're, you know, you have that gut feeling of, wow, you know, although and then you have the next person and it's successful. And then you have to remember this person and and they're still you see them every day and you're still talking to them and, and they're still in their mind going, why didn't it work for me? Why didn't it work for me? And so it's kind of hard um, to counsel people through that. And they decide to do something that, you know, medically they shouldn't do, but because they're adults, they make those decisions. I'm sorry. I took longer than a second. You know, it is hard. I, it is. It is definitely hard. Because, I mean, these are not easy choices. These are not easy decisions. And you're right. Everybody kind of at least needs to know the ultimate decision. We like to make it, you know, obviously that person. But but, but they need to really think about there's an impact on every single person. And, uh, you know, again, when we're in clinic, um, I have talked about you know, what's the right time to talk about transplant or gene therapy, especially because adults have more, more sometimes underlying organ damage. So it's not quite as smooth for them, right? Compared to especially much younger kids that may not have quite as much organ damage yet. And so again, all of this, how that one person does is, is, is really hard to predict, but there are some things that can um, kind of help us but you've got to have an entire approach um, to treatment. That is, what if I succeed? That is what we hope and pray for. And that is what we want to happen for everyone. But you got to have a plan for what if I succeed and what if I don't. And you've got to also be committed, even after success, that you might be looking at some things long term, whether that's taking pills, because that's one of the things I hear is I want to, you know, I want this gone, I don't want to take any more pills. If that is your goal, curative therapy might not be the right choice. Because after transplant, that first year, you're taking usually eight or 10 times what you're taking right now. And so again, it is a commitment that is not just for a month and not just for a week and not just for the transplant it is a long-term commitment and and it is a balance again the people that are cured those amazing stories not just on tv but even the people that we see in clinic now that are cured i mean it is it is phenomenal how life-changing that is but you also have to balance that you're right annie with the people that don't succeed and they go through all of this angst and they have emotional turmoil. I will tell you there's also emotional turmoil even in those people that do well. They they carry that with them. There there's an emotional impact of have having guilt, had of guilt. Guilt. Almost, Why did almost, I succeed my friend? Almost, almost a guilt, yeah. it's almost a, but there's a lot of components. So we you it doesn't stop with 
just that one piece. You really do have to have kind of a comprehensive support structure on both sides of that as well. Let me ask you a question. Have you been in a position where uh, once, like you say, the person needs to be informed of what's going on in the front end and in the back end? Have you been in a position where maybe a relative wasn't really listening to what it was that you were saying and the patient actually heard what you were saying and then there's that that struggle of one wants you to do it and then the other one saying hey this is not right for me how do you handle that situation if you find that one is saying even if it's a husband and wife one is saying hey let's move forward and then the other one is hearing what you're saying uh, it's not really the right time for you to do this, but yet the other person is thinking about, hey, you can get cured, so do it. Yeah. The the context that that's come up most often for me, honestly, is hydroxyurea. It's like either the patient wants to try it or the family member wants them to try it and the other person is really not excited about it or they've heard something that they're really scared of. And so it's usually... It's that conversation then, it's that conversation again, you know, in a few weeks, it's that conversation again in a few months. And so, um, and I've seen it go both ways. I've seen the person make the decision to take the therapy and I've seen the person make the decision to not take the therapy because there is that impact. There's that impact even from, from medications, right? Their perceived impact on themselves as well as their family and they want to feel supported in those decisions. And it's easier if it comes from a let's try this together um, type of approach. But but I think so much of it is just continued discussion and education and um and and um that that's part of a lot of what we do in outpatient clinic is just those discussions and conversations. Um, and they happen almost every time in terms of what's your therapy? What are you on? Are you considering something? Is it working if you're on it? Do we need to think about more things or less things? Um, and not just in terms of hydroxyurea or sickle cell disease treatment, but also in terms of pain, um, how you approach pain, what you do to treat pain. Um, chronic pain is 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 awful. It is one of the hardest things to treat. And chronic pain from sickle cell is probably one of the most complicated types of pains because it's not just chronic, right? People get intermittent acute episodes and you have to be able to deal with all these different types of pains in different ways. And most of the time, people just want it to be gone. They just want it to be gone yesterday. And it and it's hard. It's It's a hard long-term commitment to treat that pain and it's 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 probably the most awful complication in terms of people suffering if you guys excuse me for a minute we need to take an identification break hi this is ernest kelly with the faith thomas foundation you're listening to the sale on 94.1 fm wgrn and wgrn.org worldwide listen to us every wednesday night at 7:30 p.m ernie do you have a question uh that you like to ask from the conversation that just you know been taking place man that's a sobering conversation uh i, I just have a comment i know i've had people work 
work for me that has, uh, you know, a sickle cell, the kind that Dr. Desai and Annie is talking about, and people look at them, and they look healthy. They look like they're marathon runners, but they don't know the pain that these people are going through. You know, they they judge them, say, oh, they're lazy. They can't. They never come to work, and uh, and that kind of stuff. But they don't realize, you know, the level of pain that they're going through that make that they make their quality of life uh, so terrible. Um, uh, I just had to. I was thinking about that, and Dr. Sai, if you would talk about the, uh, is it the day, is it Sickle Cell Day Clinic, is that what it is? Oh, yes, the Day Hospital and Immediate Care Centers. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Sure. (laughs) Okay, sorry about that. Um, uh, Yeah, so the Sickle Cell um, Day Hospital and um, immediate care centers is uh, now um, excited to tell you it's 24-7. So people, if they're having um, a crisis, I tell them, if you're having a heart attack or think you're having a stroke, that's probably not the right place, right? You need to be in the emergency room. But the idea was to hopefully um, have have people have a place to go um, that is open to them, that knows about their disease, um, and that, um, again, they can kind of start these individualized care plans, um, and that can happen 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where you can call at three in the morning and not have to rush to the emergency room. You call, and they say, yep, if you come in like 20 minutes, we'll have a bed ready for you, and so they don't have to go, hopefully, somewhere um, uh, that, again, our emergency room does a good job in knowing our patients and we have those individualized care plans, but sometimes they are dealing with a stroke or somebody having a heart attack. And so there's a delay in care. And so you want to try to prioritize our patients getting um, optimal and, and kind of rapid treatment. And this allows for that. Is Ohio State the only one? It's the James Donnelly Hospital in Columbus or in Ohio that has that? To my knowledge, at least 24-7 in Ohio, we're the only place. And then um, even nationally, there's only, so there are several programs that have it, but it, but it's, it's harder to come by. Most day hospitals close at least for a little while, but they are starting to get more and more centers, which is which is what we want. We want places to continue to build. And so if our patients are here or they're in the middle of, you know, Wyoming, we want them to have a place to go that they could they could get care right away um, in, in terms of their health. So I think it's really, um, it's important. And there there is also now support at the national level. So um, for the past couple of years, I've had the luck to spearhead some workshops um, at the national level where um, the places that have centers like ours, we're starting to mentor centers that don't have uh, that that don't have a program or are trying to build a program from the ground up because we've already gone through here's how we had to deal with this problem and here's how this other center had to deal with this problem. Um, 
when you see one sickle cell center, you've literally seen one sickle cell center. Every single one works differently with different things, right? And so you want to make sure that um, you can help support people with different ideas and different things. But it's been a really um, fantastic and, and, and exciting um, time because there's so much energy around the people trying to build the centers, they they are passionate about sickle cell and they're passionate about their work and wanting to get help for patients, which has been pretty phenomenal. Thank you. Um, since we're talking about the, we're talking about adults and talking about pain, uh, we had the one young lady uh, that came from out of Texas and she was talking about the experience that she had at her emergency room uh, they thought that she was a drug seeker. How do Ohio State University handle those individuals, or how do you handle determining whether or not if somebody's in actual pain or if they are identified as a true drug seeker? Oh, you know, this is kind of the story you hear, unfortunately, from way too many patients. Um, I think um, the individualized care plans help validate what patients say, whether or not they should have to have that. I think that's a whole different discussion and moral and ethical dilemma. But I think that um, having those individualized care plans, the patient doesn't have to say, this is my morphine dose or this is my Dilaudid dose. They can just say, can you look in my chart? I have a care plan for my sickle cell disease. And I can say it and my team can say it. And so that gives it more kind of, yes, this is, it, it, it almost validates, right? Um, that this is really what works for the patient. This really is. So um, as we have that more and more, we hopefully have less and less of that experience where patients feel that they are see, um, seen in a certain way. In terms of other ways and things we're doing, um, so we actually looked at this in, um, we have um, hopefully something coming out in the American Society of Hematology where we are um, at the next meeting about not only how the patients felt with these plans, and kind of what happened in terms of the feedback that we got from patient experience. But we also then surveyed the emergency room doctors. Hmm. I, That's I interesting. Usually, yeah, I, so I, I like to take the idea that people in healthcare, that every single person wakes up with the idea, hopefully, and for the most part, I think it's true with the idea that they're hopefully going to be helpful, that most people come from a place of positivity, hopefully. And our emergency room staff, I think, is just, they're exhausted, they're overwhelmed, they are usually hit with the largest volume of patients. And in that situation, because of some of their prior experiences, they come from a place where they feel like they don't always trust what's being told to them. I think if we can take that off, right, because we've now said, Here, here's what works for the patient. The patient doesn't have to say it. And both expectations on the, on the nursing and, and physician side are met 
and the expectations on the patient sides are met, the idea would be that both sides would be more content. And it's not just a win for the patient, it's a win for the providers and the hospital system, because hopefully they feel better, hopefully most more people can go home, hopefully more people can feel like they got good care. And so a win for, it can be a win for both sides if you can approach it from a personalized way. And that, um, so we actually surveyed the emergency room entire team about their experience now that we've instituted individualized patient plans, whether their relationship has changed with their sickle cell patients and they think there's anything different. So. I'm glad that we were able to address that issue because it was one, like you say, that does come up uh, quite a bit. I can't believe it that we've run out of time again, and we still have a lot more conversation with Dr. Pal Desai in our discussion with sickle cell disease. So please tune in next week for part three. This is your host, Felice. Peace out. The Faith Thomas Foundation would like to thank you for listening to The Cell. We broadcast on WGRN 94.1 FM every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. You can also stream us live on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. on WGRN 94.1. For more information on the Faith Thomas Foundation, please visit our website, Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is FaithThomasFDN.